to Podiatry Today Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, Managing Editor of Podiatry Today, and for this episode, we are honored to welcome back Dr. Wendy Cole to discuss imaging pearls for osteomyelitis. Dr. Cole is the Director of Wound Care Research at Kent State University College of Podiatric Medicine and is the Director of Professional Development and Clinical Education for Wound Tech. She is board certified by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and the American Board of Wound Management. Dr. Cole is a fellow of the Academy of Physicians in Wound Healing. Thank you so much for joining us today to help us sort through the latest on this diagnostic process that many podiatrists encounter on a regular basis. So to get started today, what are some of the most common causative agents of osteomyelitis? Well, Jennifer, osteomyelitis is actually defined as inflammation of the bone marrow, and this is most commonly secondary to infection, which can progress to osteonecrosis, bone destruction, and septic arthritis, really bad stuff, right? So we typically see Staph aureus as a causative organism in as many as 80% of the cases of osteomyelitis. Most of these cases involve community-acquired MRSA strains, so methicillin-resistant Staph aureus strains. Uh, other common pathogens can include uh, Staph epidermidis and Enterobacter species. So now that we know more about what causes osteomyelitis, can we discuss with the audience some of the ways in which osteomyelitis can be spread? There are three main ways that osteomyelitis spreads. The most common that we'll see in podiatry and wound care is the contiguous spread. And this is when the infections originate from soft tissue, wounds, or the joint, and can spread directly into the bone. This often occurs in the context of vascular insufficiency uh, in our patients that may have diabetes or some sort of peripheral vascular disease. Uh, There is diminished immune response secondary to this poor perfusion, especially in the infected area of the bone and soft tissue. And these patients typically will have uh, lower extremity wounds. Those are the most commonly affected. And also uh, they're the most commonly involved with uh, peripheral neuropathy, which then also predisposes patients to repeated microtrauma. Uh, The second most common osteomyelitis is through direct inoculation, and this is when bacteria directly seed into the bone, and this can occur as a result of an open fracture uh, when we do any kind of surgical intervention where we implant metallic uh, implants or joint prostheses. Humans or animal bites and puncture wounds are also ways that direct inoculation of osteomyelitis can occur. And uh, third, and, and probably the least common way that osteomyelitis can spread is through hematogenous spread. And this is when uh, bloodborne organisms, usually bacteria, are deposited into uh, the medullary cavity and form this nidus of infection usually can be problematic in long bones because there are regions that uh, are predisposed to infection in the metaphysis and their blood supply is really kind of slow moving in this area. So it creates an ideal environment for bacteria to accumulate and proliferate. So can you then detail some of the pros and cons of using a plain film x-ray to diagnose osteomyelitis? So plain radiography is low, has low sensitivity and low specificity for detecting acute osteomyelitis. 
And as many as 80% of patients who present in the first two weeks of the uh, onset of infection will actually have normal x-rays. So bone marrow edema is the earliest pathologic feature. And really that's not able to be visualized on plain films. So features of acute osteomyelitis that might be visible uh, would include a periosteal reaction secondary to the elevation of the periosteum of the bone. However, as we know, this finding is not really specific to osteomyelitis, and we can see the, this periosteal reaction in the presence of stress fractures and even bone tumors. Now in chronic osteomyelitis, perhaps we can visualize the sequestrum on plain film radiographs. And that'll show as a focal sclerotic lesion with this lucent rim. And sometimes we can even see the involucrum, which is a thickened uh, and sclerotic bone that will surround that sequestrum. Uh, and then of course, in advanced cases of chronic osteomyelitis, we'll see cortical uh, destruction that's pretty significant. So despite its limitations, especially in the acute phase of osteomyelitis, plain films should actually still be the first line imaging test if we suspect osteomyelitis, because it really helps the clinician exclude other differentials such as stress fractures or even bone tumors. Plain film radiographs are also useful uh, for assessing the baseline uh, of a patient and then really tracking the progression of the disease because we could take uh, serial x-rays to follow up on if our treatment regimens have been effective. So knowing that there are multiple modalities available, what is the preferred imaging modality for osteomyelitis? Well, currently MRI has emerged as the imaging modality of choice, especially for diagnosing osteomyelitis, because it really has excellent uh, anatomic detail that it provides. It's highly sensitive for detecting early or acute infection. And of course, there's lack of uh, ionizing radiation involved. As we talked about, bone marrow edema is really the earliest feature of acute osteomyelitis. And this can actually be seen on MRI as early as one to two days after the onset of infection. The normal bone marrow has a high T1 signal due to the bunch of fat that's within the medullary canal. And in acute osteomyelitis, bone marrow will become congested with fluid and, and purulence, and this will produce a low signal on the those T1 images and a high signal on fluid sensitive and post contrast sequences. So when we take these images and we can compare it to the bone marrow signals in the adjacent or contralateral bones, we could really uh, detail or detect uh, early changes really uh, quickly. MRI is uh, highly sensitive for the detection of osteomyelitis and getting a normal MRI will virtually exclude the diagnosis of osteomyelitis. However, on the flip side, it's high sensitivity means that MRI can sometimes overestimate the severity of infection and abnormalities on the MRI might persist even after the infection has begun to resolve after we've treated the patient appropriately with uh, IV or oral antibiotics or even uh, surgical intervention. So MRI findings should always 
be correlated with the clinical picture to avoid unnecessary or over aggressive treatments. We always say, you know, we treat the patient, we don't treat the radiographs or we don't treat the MRI. So keep that in the back of your mind. And despite the many advantages of MRI, there are certain circumstances where an MRI is not feasible. Uh, the presence of any permanent pacemaker in your inter intracranial uh, aneurysm coils, those are considered absolute contraindications. Uh, patients with metallic implants, sometimes we see the usefulness of MRI is decreased because we'll see that susceptibility artifact is a magnet. So when there's metal, we'll see uh, that artifact really uh, camouflage or mask the area that we're looking at, especially if it's a post-surgical patient. So it's also important to have an understanding of uh, what alternative modalities uh, we have available uh, if we still uh, suspect osteomyelitis in patients that have these contraindications. If radiographs are not specific and a patient has a contraindication to MRI, what other imaging choices are available? Well, in these cases, bone scans could be a very helpful tool. And bone scans are nuclear medicine studies that involve the intravenous administration of a radionuclide, uh, which emits radiation that can be detected by a gamma camera. And clinicians can assess the abnormality of bony metabolism, which in osteomyelitis would manifest as areas of increased uptake. And the most common performed bone scans for diagnosing osteomyelitis are a three-phase bone scan, gallium scans, and white cell scans. And in general, these nuclear medicine studies have a high sensitivity in detection of osteomyelitis and allow imaging of the whole skeleton. So that's an advantage. So you can look for multiple sites of infection. However, Bone scans uh, are limited uh, by poor specificity in anatomical lo localization. So in my experience, sometimes you get a bone scan and the whole midfoot lights up and you're not sure what particular bone uh, might be involved. Uh, so it lacks that anatomic specificity. So there is an abnormal result. Oftentimes you do want to confirm with an MRI or even a bone biopsy uh, so that you could make the definitive diagnosis of osteomyelitis. So in a three-phase bone scan, technetium dye is injected intravenously and followed up by acquisition of, of three different photos uh, in three different phases. So we look at the blood pool phase, the tissue phase, and the osseous phase. And the technetium will localize to areas of increased osteoclastic or osteoblastic activity. And that way it, it can tell us, uh, you know, the difference between osteomyelitis and just cellulitis. In osteomyelitis, the high tracer uptake will be present in all three of the phases, but in cellulitis, there'll just be high uptake only in those first two phases. Three-phase bone scans have a high sensitivity for detecting osteomyelitis in non-violated bone. So bone that has not been fractured or that surgical intervention hasn't occurred. Uh, and, and we can see early changes even in early stages of infection. However, 
their specificity is lowered when bone has been violated. So when there's been trauma or malignancy or previous surgery, uh, all of these things can cause an increase in osseous uh, uptake, making it difficult to differentiate osteomyelitis in these circumstances. So three-phase bone scans must be used in conjunction with another type of scan to improve accuracy in bone that has been previously violated. So we have white blood cell uh, labeled scans uh, that could currently be used to investigate suspected osteomyelitis when the bone bone has been violated. Uh, In these white blood cell scans, patient's own white blood cells are taken and labeled with uh, a a tracer, uh, usually indium, and then returned into the patient uh, via uh, an IV. And when we see increased up, uh, increased white blood cell uptake, excuse me, uh, in the areas, then that would indicate infection. However, normal bone marrow also can take up white blood cells in a variable distribution. So to differentiate between infection and this physiologic marrow uptake, white blood cell scans are usually uh, also combined with those technesium or three uh, phase bone scans. And it could really help us to provide a map of uh, areas that just are physiologic uptake of white blood cells uh, compared to areas that there really is truly a bone infection present. This is a really great breakdown of what can sometimes be a little bit of a complicated decision-making process. Are there any additional clinical pearls that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Yeah, as you mentioned, this is is difficult sometimes to kind of figure out what's the best uh, test for the best patient in in the best scenario, right? So in my experience, you know, any diabetic foot ulcer that fails to progress by 50% in four weeks really should have some sort of imaging to rule out osteomyelitis. Any patient that exhibits exposed bone or the positive probe to bone test should really be worked up and evaluated for osteomyelitis. Any wound in the area of a surgical scar or where a previous surgical intervention has occurred should also have osteomyelitis ruled out. And when you suspect osteomyelitis, it's always a good thing to treat it at least uh, initially with an antibiotic that would cover methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, since we know that over 80% of the cases that we're seeing of osteomyelitis have MRSA as their pathologic organism. So I found an algorithm that really is helpful in determining, you know, which study would be appropriate at any given time for a patient. And, And basically, if you suspect osteomyelitis, you'd start with a plain film radiograph. We want to exclude any fracture. Again, this is kind of uh, will serve as our baseline for patient follow-up. And then we can also determine if we see any other osseous changes. Uh, If the plain film radiograph comes back negative and clean and clear, and you still suspect that there might be some underlying osteomyelitis, then you would consider getting an MRI. 
Uh, first, you have to evaluate your patient. You know, do they have any of those contraindications to an MRI? If they don't have any contraindications to MRI, go ahead and get that MRI. So we could early see early signs of osteomyelitis and we'll usually see bone marrow edema and some soft tissue changes. If the patient unfortunately has a contraindication to MRI, and then you want to move on to some of those nuclear medicine and, and bone scan studies that we just spoke about. Uh, if the patient has a previous violation of bone trauma, uh, any kind of, uh, surgical intervention, uh, then you want to combine that three phase bone scan with a white blood cell scan. If the bone has not had any previous violation, then you're probably good with getting that three phase bone scan to evaluate for osteomyelitis. I hope that helps to simplify a very complicated, uh, problem that we face in, in podiatry and in wound care. It was great to go back to the basics of the etiologies and associated organisms for osteomyelitis. In addition to applying that knowledge, the diagnostic decision-making process related to imaging. Thank you so much, Dr. Cole, for sharing your expertise here, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in with us today. Always remember that you can find this episode and many others on podiatrytoday.com and many of your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you next time. <music>